You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. On January 26, 2017, the Public Policy Forum released a report called The Shattered Mirror. Two immediate conclusions can be drawn from the fifth anniversary of this publication, which was on the future of news in Canada, and its powerful diagnostic of accelerating revenue declines among producers of original, publicly interested journalism. The stuff that matters for democracy. One, the problem and the risks it poses to the vibrancy of our democracy have not gone away. And two, we may be seeing some green shoots of relief through innovation and government policymaking, as well as within the for-profit and not-for-profit business models, although the latter have yet to reach sufficient scale. So you need policy working, you need markets working. Both are very challenging in this area, but we've seen some progress since the publication of The Shattered Mirror, which made 12 recommendations, six of which have seen the light of day in one form or another, the application of GST, HST to foreign digital service providers that evens the playing field with disadvantaged Canadian digital companies, the removal of at least some barriers to philanthropic support for journalism in Canada, the rebalancing copyright rules to strengthen the rights of news originators, the creation of a fund to support local journalism along the lines of what the BBC was beginning to do in Britain at the time of the publication of The Shattered Mirror, the establishment of a parallel support system for Indigenous journalism, and the establishment of a research institute dedicated to the study of journalism and democracy, which has also been fulfilled. So at least six of these have made progress, and some of the others we still have great hopes for. Subsequent to the release report in January 2017, PPF workshopped with publishers and unions and others what would ultimately become the Journalism Labor Tax Credit which was brought forth in the 2019 federal budget is arguably the most important and least intrusive form of providing support for news organizations. And then, of course, there was the report's foundational recommendation, which boiled down to the creation of a special tax or levy upon sellers of digital advertising within Canada who did not reinvest in journalism. And for all intents and purposes, this proposal is addressed by the transfers contained within the so-called Australian model promised by the government or the alternative formulation of a levy on tech akin to the cable levy that finances the Canada Media Fund. So we'll all stay tuned and see what kind of policies are coming forth in that area. Five years on, the problems and risks that were posed at that point to the vibrancy of our democracy have not gone away and the world hasn't stood still. Policies, even good policies, always benefit from tweaking or more when applied in real-world circumstances. And it's time, as we have this fifth anniversary, to look at some of the better policies and how we can improve upon them, including the Local Journalism Initiative. Well, I'm thrilled today to take stock of the situation in 2022 with three of the principal researchers on the Shattered Mirror, Colette Brin, Chris Dornan, and Elizabeth Dubois, and I will introduce them in more detail in a moment. They will all be with us. The fourth principal researcher, Taylor Owen, is not with us today, unfortunately, but is doing a lot of work with the Public Policy Forum on his area of expertise. Before we get to that, in one moment, let me just thank our sponsor. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated just how important strong and resilient healthcare is to all Canadians, and how important a strong base of scientific inquiry and discovery and investment is. The Public Policy Forum 
is the think tank about tomorrow, which is why we are keen to touch on timely issues of relevance to Canadians, the new challenges of policy. Our podcast sponsor, Johnson & Johnson, also knows how critical it is to provide strong healthcare services to Canadians and a strong scientific base, and we thank them for their support of Policy Speaking. And now for our future interview with some of my colleagues from the work that we did in 2016 and 2017 on The Shattered Mirror. I'm pleased to introduce our guests today. Colette Brin is a professor at University Laval's Department of Information and Communications and the director of the Centre d'Etudes sur les Médias. Her research and teaching focus on recent and ongoing change in journalism through policy and organizational initiatives, as well as citizens' news practices. She coordinates the Canadian edition of the Digital News Reports from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and is chairperson of the Canada Revenue Agency's Independent Advisory Board on Eligibility for Journalism Tax Measures. That would no doubt be a government-named organization. Lots of words in it. Christopher Dornan taught at Carleton University for 33 years, where he served for nine years as director of the School of Journalism and Communications and six years as director of the Arthur Kruger College of Public Affairs. He is the co-editor with John Pamet of the Canadian Federal Election of 2021, forthcoming from McGill Queen's University Press, along with seven previous volumes in the series of election studies. And Elizabeth Dubois is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. Her work examines digital media influence and political engagement. Elizabeth is a graduate of the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, where she completed a PhD in Information, Communication, and Social Sciences, as well as an MSc in the Social Sciences of the Internet. Welcome all onto Policy Speaking, and welcome back into the PPF family fold. Great to be here. Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you, okay? We're talking here on the anniversary of the release of The Shattered Mirror. And as I described in the intro, all of you were research associates in that project, very deeply involved in that project. So five years on, how well have we as a country done in terms of the risks that have faced us? Thanks so much for bringing us all back together. I think it's a really interesting question to say what progress has been made in five years and what still needs to get done. So I think there's some really promising stuff. I know you'll probably talk about some of the local journalism initiatives and those kinds of things. There's also been a deeply changed environment in the past five years, particularly when we look at the online context, which is where most of my work focuses. The way people make use of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and so many other tools to share political information and news has shifted substantially. And so, yeah, I think we've made some pretty interesting progress. And I think we're more critical now of the relationship between technology companies, these platforms, and government and journalism and citizens that make up society. But I think that the relationships between those kinds of actors has also continued to shift. So just for a minute before we move on, give us one or two just quick examples of consequential shifts. Yeah. So I think looking at something like the way that we think about disinformation and the importance of facts and authoritative sources has really become extra important, right? We're spending more time thinking about how we identify what is trustworthy information and how we don't. 
I think the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted for us the role that technology companies necessarily play in labeling information. I think when we first worked on The Shattered Mirror, we weren't thinking of technology companies as likely to play that kind of a labeling kind of role, right? Like we expected journalism to be needed for that. And so there's a shift there in how that works. On the flip side, I think we've spent a little more time where we're seeing journalistic organizations spending a little more time and energy doing things outside of the purview of these platforms on their own. And that I think is really interesting and exciting. We're seeing newer digital startups and new innovative kinds of journalistic organizations starting to crop up. And that is also really exciting and a pretty impactful shift. Okay, well, I want to come back on both those points, particularly, I think, the latter one. But Colette, let me turn to you for a second. So what have we dealt with well and what haven't we dealt with yet? Well, if we're talking about Canada, I think Canada has dealt with the issue of the challenges facing the media news industry, and that's still ongoing. However, that really feels to me kind of like a piece apart from the broader problem of what we now call information disorder, because that includes, of course, disinformation and misinformation that are really hard to take apart, actually, because they work together, and all kinds of other problems that we all face as users of the internet and of all kinds of content and how to find what's really news in there, what's really valuable information, and what's kind of noise, and what's entertainment and all that stuff, which is really great too. How to pick apart all this content that's coming at us and to make our own choices, because that's the reality we're faced with. So helping the media industry is a piece of that, but you have to make that connection between journalism and users. I don't want to use audiences, because I don't think we're (laughs) still using that term, although it still exists. Just walk me through that for a second, though, that bridge. You're talking about, because of course, journalism is for users or audiences. What is the connect that we have to build there? There is a relatively strong trust if you compare to some other countries. Certainly among French-speaking Canadians, we see that the trust is pretty strong, but there's a disconnect, and especially among younger people. We all know this, that younger people do not consume traditional news sources, and they will turn to other types of sources, which can be great sources, which can actually teach a lot of things to journalism practitioners as well, how to do news in the current time. But also, I think some of that mistrust towards news media is not always very informed. But I think the problem is on both sides, not saying that young people have to subscribe to traditional newspapers and so on. But there are lessons to be learned on both sides for that. And I don't think we've resolved that challenge yet, for sure. Okay, Chris, same question to you in a very open-ended way as well. What have we done so far reasonably well? What haven't we yet addressed? Or as Elizabeth is telling us, has come at us anew? I think Elizabeth's absolutely right. The big change in the last five years has been sort of a big picture change in the entire kind of media ecosystem, not just what's happened with news journalism, but on a much larger canvas, a much larger stage, these very consequential and kind of structural shifts. So, you know, like five years ago, when Shattered Mirror was released, you could see the end of the dominance of the television networks, for example. But now, five years later, they really have been eclipsed by streaming services such as Netflix. And you've had an explosion in different types of venues, locales, platforms for social interaction from, you know, TikTok didn't exist five years ago. Now it's hugely prominent. So you've had these sort of 
much, much larger, big scale, big picture changes. In some respects, the traditional news media, certainly in Canada, remain kind of trapped in a previous era. So I was trying to get to see how well the traditional news media fared over the past five years. Shattered Mirror mentioned that the daily newspaper ad revenue in 2017 in Canada was $1.42 billion. The latest figures I can find are from 2019, and that figure had dropped to $777 million. So half of that advertising revenue has just disappeared over the space of five years. That's before the pandemic. And that's before the pandemic. The pandemic has hammered them even further. But what I found, first of all, if you are one of these legacy news media organizations, this is a kind of terrifying number. But what I was struck by, of of that $777 million in ad revenue, 559 of it, 559 million is still from print ad revenue. It's not digital. Only 195 million of that is coming to the news organizations through digital advertising. So it's as though the, the legacy news media haven't made the kind of leap into the brave new world that most certainly younger Canadians now occupy. And Lord knows how much worse it would be for these companies and indeed for the Canadian public good, since these reputable, conscientious news organizations are essential to the public good. Lord knows how much worse it would be if measures had not been taken. Some of the recommendations that the report made were informed policy discussions and We did get things like the Local Journalism Initiative. We did get things like more than $500 million committed to the support of journalistic enterprise in Canada. We did get the labor tax credit that assists journalistic organizations in kind of navigating these perilous waters that they occupy. And I think also, as Colette mentioned, the pandemic has shown us how vital, responsible, and trustworthy sources of information are, particularly in a state of kind of global emergency, and how really horrendous it would be if we didn't actually have these. It's bad enough at the moment, we're swimming in disinformation and misinformation, but it would be infinitely worse were the conscientious journalistic operations no longer with us. I want to talk about some of the policy choices. I want to set the table to talk about that by saying that Policy isn't the only means of revival. Innovation is also clearly another aspect. And I do want to talk about innovation a little bit later, Elizabeth said, and you know, it was her second point about startups. And I wonder a lot how much the green shoots I'm seeing are going to amount to enough journalistic consequence to make a difference. I do want to start on policy. And I think when we're doing the shattered mirror, I know that we put ourselves through the filter of three questions. Is the decline of revenues that we're seeing in news media going to pose a risk to the health of our democracy? If so, are new digital means of communication going to plug that gap? If not, is policy necessary? And what would be its least intrusive and most efficacious way of pursuing that? Five years on, and Colette, why don't you take this first? Chris has just articulated certain of those policies. Which of those policies do you like and which of those policies do you like less or think are less effective? Well, as you know from my introduction, I obviously have a direct conflict with one of those policies. So I'm directly involved in it, which you can probably read as I believe in it and I'm working to make it work as well as it can, but I will let other people judge. So that's the labor tax credit and really that whole program, that whole package of 
determining which news organizations qualify. So that's how I'm involved at that very early stage. And of course, I don't distribute the money. So nobody write me for a check, but I am involved in that process. And of course, as anyone involved in any process would say, there are good things and challenges. I'll fill in the blank for you in a moment on the labor tax. Oh, I'll let you do that. I must say also, it's a slow process. I mean, implementing policy in between election cycles with a pandemic and all of this stuff, it just makes it more complex. I mean, you see how the CERB was laid out really, really quickly in the early days of the pandemic, and we see all the problems related to that quick rollout as well. And it's really hard, actually, to pull apart. I think it's going to take some independent analysis, which I'm obviously not qualified to do, but to take apart the impact of these specific policies and programs and also the emergency support that was provided during the pandemic. Certainly in the first wave of 2020, that emergency support really made the difference. I mean, this program hadn't been rolled out yet. We were just getting started in in assessing applications and it was just chaos everywhere because it was the first wave. So that emergency support in the form of a lot of it was advertising, those huge ads, wear a mask, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. This is where you can go get a test. Just in the work we were doing for the tax credit program, just reading through newspapers, we were seeing all these ads and some of these publications were actually able to, and I'm talking about small community operations, were actually able to double the number of pages they were putting out. So that has a very real impact, but it's not a media policy. This is like an emergency response. The information we have, at least in Quebec, is that a lot of organizations were actually doing better in that time than they would have. And they were actually reducing newsroom costs by not going places, by doing everything remotely. I mean, there are all all kinds of other problems related to that as well. The period we are still in, I'm not sure we're in a real kind of, you know, we're going to have to wait a little bit more to see the impact of these programs. The local journalism initiative for sure had a direct and very quick impact. I know there are questions about how that program should be assessed and how going forward, if the program becomes a long-term initiative, what kind of follow-up needs to be done to see how efficient it is in terms of the quality of journalism being done. There's always the problem when the government gets involved with these things or even arm's length organizations, are they being the journalism police? That's the question we always ask ourselves at the advisory board. It's like, we don't want to be the journalism police and nobody should be the journalism police. I probably should say that in the Shattered Mirror deliberations, we explicitly rejected calling on the government to advertise in newspapers. We, I think, felt that if that was the most efficient way to reach their audiences, they should. But it shouldn't be a mandated thing. I mean, the point is to advertise as efficiently as possible to get your audience, which was a kind of separate question from should newspapers be supported or other means of delivering news supported for specific purposes. Elizabeth, let me go with you with the same idea. Is there some policy that you think has been working well? Is there some policy that you don't like that much? Is there a piece of policy that's missing? It's really great. And a lot of what Colette said really resonates with me too. I think in particular, the impact of the local journalism initiative has been really impressive. I think that there's also been less policy and more what new money has done. Things like efforts towards understanding journalism and democracy through the Digital Democracy Project or through Taylor Owen's lab at McGill have really started conversations and increased research capacity, which I think is really helpful. I think there is still a big, big policy gap when we think about how we deal with tech companies and the role of these platforms in our 
kind of public life. I think that some of the efforts towards dealing with online harms, for example, really meld a bunch of things together. Some of those things are related to journalism and some of those things are not related to journalism. But the way we're thinking about policy development around these platforms currently in the Canadian context forces us to have those conversations together. And generally, I think that's a good thing. Generally, I think we need to be having those conversations together. But it really does point to one of the biggest challenges, I think, for the next five years of shattered mirror type questions where we're thinking about the role of journalism and democracy, thinking about how policy can support and bolster where it's needed. And I think we need to be thinking about it not just as journalism or media policy, but also as related to a bunch of other tech policy problems. You mentioned Taylor Owen, professor at McGill. I guess I should just reiterate that there were four principal researchers on this project, and you uh, three and Taylor was also one of those. He wasn't able to join us for this discussion today, but still deeply involved with the public policy forum, and particularly on the questions of, I guess, structural issues affecting affecting the platforms and how that impacts the quality of information that people are receiving. Chris, I guess basically the same question, although perhaps you also want to look at it, you know, policies working, policies not working through the lens of the adversarial tensions that are supposed to exist between governments and news media, but how those have become a lightning rod in a lot of these discussions. Well, there's certainly there's two camps of people who are critical of public support for the journalistic enterprise. And both critical positions are perfectly legitimate and understandable. One is a kind of more pragmatic complaint, and then the other is a more philosophical complaint. The more pragmatic complaint is, why are we funneling public funds, tax, taxpayers' money, to support failed business enterprises? Companies that are very much, yes, they may be blindsided by the rise of the digital platforms, but they're also in large measure the authors of their own misfortune. They kind of repeatedly did the wrong things confronted with a changing media and advertising environment. And these are profit-seeking corporations. So if you give money to support post-media, then, you know, to what extent does that public money basically end up lining the ledgers of post-media rather than contributing to the public good? And I think that's a kind of legitimate and quite powerful objection to public support for private sector journalistic undertakings. The other is the philosophical objection is that public monies are ultimately government monies. The government makes the decision to commit the public funds. And that means government involvement in the journalistic universe. As Colette says, you know, the government then becomes the journalism police. They decide who gets money, who doesn't get money. And that, therefore, the journalistic enterprise, which is supposed to be beholden to nobody except the public good, suddenly becomes beholden to government and the entire enterprise becomes undermined or corrupted. That philosophical objection, I think, that can be readily answered. I mean, we have long traditions in the Western liberal democracies, with the exception of the United States, of public support for the public good of journalism. And there are mechanisms, ways to make sure that you can commit public funds to this without it being at the whim or discretion of the government of the day. So, you know, we have in the West, the BBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. These are publicly funded, but are more than arm's length from the governments of the countries that they serve. So I think there are answers to the philosophical complaint. The pragmatic complaint remains. That's why, you know, as a policy measure, I like the local journalism initiative, because it's not giving money 
to large corporations that otherwise would be losing money. It's trying to funnel journalistic support into news deserts, places of journalistic impoverishment. I like the labor tax credit because it's kind of blind. It's agnostic. It doesn't really care. You could be a digital startup. You could be the Toronto Star. You know, it kind of applies equally. It's not picking winners or losers. I think Colette wants to get in on a couple of your points here, Chris. I see her eager to do that. You're saying, Chris, that that argument still stands, but you were starting to respond to it. So I'm just going to kind of continue on that. You could say that local news, original, local, civic-minded journalism, there's no business model for that. So you could call it a failed business or you could call it public good, something that needs to be supported. And then it's more a question of how than whether you do it or not. And I think between us, we, of course, agree on this. And we're not going to convince everyone that this is a good idea. But I certainly see an evolution of a mindset on this idea. There's certainly a lot of interest around the world for what's happening in Canada. And I think other countries are watching closely this program. And the fact that it's agnostic, as you say, that it's actually an incentive to invest in newsrooms, to invest in original news content, including, and now I'm quoting the act, including the coverage of democratic institutions and processes, firsthand reporting, not just cobbling together, aggregating or repurposing or just rewriting news releases, which journalists know to be not a good practice. But some business owners, even some editors are not necessarily as familiar with those norms. And that's an issue also with the local journalism initiative with which I am not involved. I think the impact can be very different from an organization to the next, whether that local journalists who are often very young journalists, which is awesome because that's like jobs for our students and former students and for younger journalists out there. I think that's great. But if those people are not under the supervision of a qualified editor, they can be asked to do a lot of this kind of less valuable work. Colette, as the partner of all of you in this venture, and because you felt constrained in what you could say also about partners still involved with labor tax credit, I'm just going to say a couple of things to what both of you said in this instance. Then I'm going to come back and talk about something that Elizabeth said to me five and a half years ago. I'll remind her of that. So the first point, if Alan Gregg was with us here on this discussion today, and he did the polling research, the public opinion research for the Shattered Mirror, which included a rather in-depth poll and six um, focus groups in three locations across the country in English and French. And one of the things that he found was, A, a tremendous amount of respect and trust for journalism particularly as practiced by journalists who people could identify, whether it was their local reporter or their local columnist or the anchor of a newscast or whatever it may be, so much respect for the role that journalism plays in holding power to account that it was accompanied by a great suspicion of having the government involved. And then when you'd ask people in the focus groups, and I attended most of the focus groups, yes, but what about the CBC? They would just basically fall silent. They couldn't quite add it up that newspapers and the CBC, they saw them in different buckets. So that's one point. Colin, in your answer, you used the words original and civic-minded are what we call civic journalism. I'm happy that, you know, we played a role in introducing those as important concepts into the discussion, into policymaking, that what was really at risk was original journalism and that contributed to the civic function of the country and was civic-minded journalism. And the local journalism initiative, I guess I should just say that the public policy forum is 
we're happy that the shattered mirror put this forth as a concept. But like all new policies, as you've said, it could use some polishing up. I think there's some improvements to be made to building on a pretty solid foundation. So maybe I should give you guys all a chance before I go to Elizabeth to argue, contradict, or go to Elizabeth and move to filter bubbles. You remember, I'm sure, that I think in June 2016, we went out to lunch to talk about this project in Ottawa, and you introduced me to filter bubbles, which I have to admit that I had not heard of until June 2016, which put me ahead of a lot of people, I suppose, in some ways, because it was the U.S. election in November that really raised the question of disinformation and the role that was being played. And I think because of that intervention, we changed our focus or we added to our focus, which had been news and democracy, but we added trust. News, democracy, and trust in the digital age was the subtitle of the report. I kind of want to talk about trust. I want to talk about disinformation and misinformation and where we are on that. And the point that Chris raises about fundamental concerns about free speech versus the pollution of free speech and how the heck we get at that without endangering our precious philosophical belief in free speech. It's a huge number of things that all have to come together on that. On the filter bubbles front, they still happen, right? Like the whole value of social media to us is that it personalizes information for us. So yes, we absolutely still end up getting more of what we have already clicked on and liked and shared and commented on. And that's not necessarily bad because some research that's been done in the subsequent years has shown that people in their wider media ecosystem with lots of different choices of lots of different platforms most of the time, pull in information from a bunch of places. So that's awesome. That is really great news. That is a boon. It's like hopeful for democracy. Let's continue getting people to use a variety of tools for collecting news and political information. And so part of the trust conversation, I think, is educational. It's what's been talked about as media and digital literacy. So adding on to our traditional news media literacy ideas of you need to understand how the technologies you're using to collect that information have an impact on what's being served to you, what you have access to. Then we kind of sidestep into this conversation on free speech. And immediately I'm a little bit irked because no sharing of information online is free. There is no expectation of complete freedom. And I really find it frustrating to have a conversation about free speech when we're talking about sharing content on platforms that are owned by giant companies that are usually based somewhere else and that usually are driven by laws and economies far away from Canada. Well, maybe not that far, maybe just south of the border. But the point is, Canada is not the major player in deciding how most of these platforms choose what is and isn't allowed to be spread on their platform. And so we need to, first of all, I think, establish that all information being shared online is controlled to some extent. And then we move from there. And then we move to how do we ensure that there is vibrant, healthy, civic conversation and discussion and sharing of information. And that's the thing that I get excited about. And I think when we frame it in that way and not as a free speech debate, we actually have room to work within the media system that we exist in. Chris, I'd love you to respond to that. And you've done some writing about disinformation for international organizations subsequent to the Shattered Mirror. How do you kind of, in your own mind, strike the balance between 
doing something about speech that misinforms people purposely, often maliciously, and add that precious value of free speech, which you as a journalist and a journalism professor have embraced for several decades, well, all your life, and with a science background also, which is similarly about free investigation. Here's a big, big difference between now and when Shattered Mirror was released. The tech giants loomed over Shattered Mirror. I mean, it was the ascendance of Internet 2.0, the rise of the social media platforms, Facebook, Google, coming to dominate public and personal discourse that visited so much damage on the 20th century media regime, that visited so much damage on the 20th century, what we call now the legacy news media organizations. But although they kind of loomed large in the diagnostic and explanatory universe of Shattered Mirror, Shattered Mirror didn't make any recommendations about what to do about them. It was sort of, well, how do we preserve the public good of conscientious journalism in the face of this changed media environment? Big difference now is five years later is, I don't know exactly, you know, how we're going to square this circle between preserving liberty of expression and also policing expression that is manifestly harmful to the public good. But something's coming and we're seeing indications of it. I mean, the kind of negotiated arrangement that Australia has come up with between the news media organizations and the tech giants, Facebook and Google is a harbinger of things to come. Australia has been the first jurisdiction to really kind of try to bell that cat. But more than that, we are painfully aware now of there are all sorts of benefits have arrived with the ascendance of the social media giants. But all sorts of public detriment has come at the same time, and some of it quite perilously worrisome, to the point where Facebook and Twitter themselves managed to expel from their kind of public space former president of the United States and sitting members of the U.S. Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene are no longer allowed on those platforms because how they use it is so venomously dangerous to the public good. So I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but something is definitely coming now. Okay, let me touch on one last question here for you. And I'll start with Elizabeth. And at the beginning, you know, you talked about startups these green shoots. The second question we asked ourselves in the order was, are digital forms of communication replacing what we're losing? So what do you, are you saying that makes you optimistic or pessimistic? Yeah. So the things that make me optimistic is seeing the innovation, not only in terms of new journalistic efforts and endeavors, whether it's organizations or individual outlets or people starting Facebook and Instagram and TikTok accounts, but sometimes it's also built into the legacy media, you know, the established media. We've got lots of often, as Colette mentioned, like young journalists fresh out of school, really eager to make a mark, really literate when it comes to how to make use of digital tools and engage online. And that kind of innovation is really, really essential for not only bolstering new opportunities and creating these new organizations, but also making sure that the more established brands that we know and trust are still relevant and there, right? So that is fantastic. I think that there is still a risk. And I thought this five years ago too, when we pin our hopes to digital solving problems. Digital isn't going to solve any problems. A complete shift to digital wouldn't have been possible and certainly hasn't been what we've observed. And it's how people start to learn how our new 
and evolving media environment works and making use of those tools in interesting ways, that's what's going to help us preserve this public good that I think everyone, at least on this call, really values. Chris, are you seeing green shoots of innovation and are they have enough weight, do you think, to carry the journalistic day? The answer is yes, I'm seeing green shoots and no, they won't have enough weight. I look at something like the logic created by David Scott, who's assembled a great team of small but very good journalists. This is a digital startup that covers the tech industry itself, an industry that desperately needs to be covered with close and conscientious attention. This is an example of something that I think will certainly make a go of it. I think it's got a business model that will work. So you can see examples like that. But as Colette pointed out right at the beginning of our discussion, then there's just local community news. If you live in Moose Jaw and the newspaper that served Moose Jaw for 178 years has closed its doors. Hello to my Aunt Sandra who lives in Moose Jaw. Sorry about that. Aunt Sandra is in a peculiar situation where she's got swimming in information from all over the world, from the BBC World Service to Al Jazeera to the New York Times, but she doesn't have a local paper that covers her city council and her school boards and her local police force. And that's the business model for that type of local journalism has been fatally compromised. And so you can't do a kind of the logic green shoot thing that will spring up because it doesn't have a commercial base. And so there's got to be some kind of public policy intervention that will support these otherwise impoverished news localities and communities. You know, it's interesting to me you pick Moostra, not just because of Aunt Sandra, but there was a time early in my journalism career, which included, a, as you know, starting in Lloydminster on the Saskatchewan Alberta border and working for the China Leader Post about 40 minutes from Moostra, where I thought that a disproportionate number of great journalists were from Moostra or had passed through Moostra. And This is an important point, I think. You know, the great Peter Zowski, who died 20 years ago, spent part of his journalism career in Moose Jaw. Don McGillivray was a very important journalist several decades ago, was in Moose Jaw. My friend Dale Eisler, who was the dean of journalists in the Prairies. A lot of people pass in Moose Jaw. And why I say this is that it's important, I think, to have that local journalistic experience also for the community but also for the development of journalists. That's really where you experiment and you learn your craft. Colette, I'll turn it over. You could tell us about your aunts and uncles and their experience with journalism. And tell us from your perspective, seeing a lot of organizations and also seeing a somewhat different ecosystem in Quebec, whether you're encouraged or not. Yes. Well, when you think of the local ecosystem or media ecosystem in Quebec, I think the first example that comes to mind outside of Quebec might be La Presse, which actually switched to a mobile app, got rid of print very early on, and is doing pretty well now for all kinds of reasons. They have a donor base now. They also had a fairly sizable donation from their former owners, the Marais family, but still they're doing well and they've been able to maintain their newsroom. So that's one example. Of course, they've profited. If I could just say an important example also, because innovation doesn't only belong to startups. It can belong to established companies, legacy companies that decide to innovate, really innovate. Yeah. And another example, well, of course, the Devoir is another example, which actually chose the paid model from the beginning of its web presence. 
when everybody was putting everything else out for free. And the last example would be the local regional dailies in Quebec, which actually formed a co-op structure two years ago. They were on the verge of bankruptcy and really basically the newsrooms and the communities came together. I mean, that's a really original and I think maybe not very tech. Well, they are all very on mobile and online, but it's a very kind of traditional model, the cooperative model. But something that I think a lot of people in the business community are nervous about because it's just not the kind of thing that you expect to be viable or to turn a profit, I guess. But they have strengths. I think they have challenges as well, but they're very happy about where they are now. Of course, I don't have all the business information, but so innovation has different shapes. It's not just, oh, we're using AI and we're doing all this really fancy tech stuff. That's really good. The Globe and Mail is a great example of its use of AI to support the newsroom but it's not the only form of innovation. Okay, well, look, when you talk about innovation, we also have to talk about in the context of policy. And we've seen some innovative policy. We're seeing innovative policy in other places around the world, in Australia, France, when it comes to disinformation, some interesting stuff out of the UK. And I think you guys have been at the forefront of that here in Canada with the Shattered Mirror, with all of the other work that you've done. Today's conversation reminds me of why that is. And it's because there's a sense of intellectual energy and inquiry. I think if you're settled on the answers, you're not going to find them. It's only when you're out there searching through the questions. And I suppose that's a good principle of journalism and a good principle for moving forward on policy. So I want to thank you all. I want to thank you for the work we did together five years ago. I want to thank you for the contributions today. Thank Thank you. you for bringing us together. My pleasure. At this point in the podcast, we like to take a moment to highlight one of our members that has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of their ongoing contribution to a stronger and more resilient Canada. This week, we want to say how PPF proud we are of our member Via Rail, which announced that its new fleet of trains for the Quebec City Windsor Quarter will be one of the most environmentally friendly fleets in North America. Via Rail's new fleet will also offer an unparalleled, barrier-free, and fully accessible travel experience to its passengers. These are trains of tomorrow, the trains of the future, with us today. The plan is going full steam ahead, and passengers will be able to begin boarding these trains later in 2022. So thank you to Via Rail for being a leader in reimagining how Canadians travel. Here's a wrap on this edition of Policy Speaking. Thank you for tuning in. We discussed some very important issues today, very lively. Great to be back with that gang. Please share this episode with a friend and feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice and let us know what you'd like to hear in future on Policy Speaking. I want to thank Katie Davey, the editor of PPF Media, and a bevy of other colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.